So, tonight we're doing a lesson called The Gospel and the Prophets. I feel like we've had three different titles for this at different times. I think the idea of this is that we're bridging the Old and the New Testament. And I do have to say that this was sort of an afterthought lesson, a little bit, but it seems like an essential lesson as we taught it yesterday. And it's really fresh on our minds. And uh, I thought it went great. And it's some really cool stuff to like read through and learn about. And so I hope you enjoy it. Um, our theme verse that kind of uh, gets at what we're getting at today is from Luke 24. This is Jesus speaking. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, and so your blank there is messianic prophecy. And so basically the idea of the Old Testament contains different prophecies of a Messiah who was to come. How many? Well, there's about 100 predictions conservatively in the Old Testament. And uh, this would have been written by multiple authors in different books over a period of 1,000 years or more. So just to kind of sit back and like think about that, that's amazing. You know, it's one thing like when there's a TV show that you watch that you love that sets up some idea over three seasons, and you're like, oh my goodness, like I didn't, you know, I can't believe they thought that far in advance. And this is like over a thousand years and it's over a hundred predictions, which is pretty cool. So it's really almost like to say, I don't know if there's even anything that equals that in all of literature. And it's even more to say this is not a work of fiction. So it's like, this is obviously unparalleled in that way. Um, these prophecies point to a coming Messiah who's going to rise from the family of Abraham, it's your first blank, in the line of David, second blank, to establish an eternal kingdom and redeem God's people. So Abraham, David, and redeem. So that's what we're getting at. Um, so this title, the gospel and the prophets, what do we mean by that? Um, gospel literally means, you know what it literally means? Good news. Good news, okay. Um, and I would say that in some senses we're studying, you know, in our Sunday school class, we've already been through the whole Bible. So we, we kind of have this idea of what all happens. I realize right now we're only through what Chronicles, um, so we're not even that deep in. I mean, halfway in the Old Testament, effectively. Um, but what you'll see is, is there's a lot of good news in the Old Testament. There's a lot of good news in the New Testament, and yet for me, the prevailing news is really kind of bad news. Um, I think that if you look at certainly in the Kings and in the uh, Judges, it's more common that the Kings and the Judges are bad than they are good. David will talk about that here in a second. Um, also, there's just this like never-ending spiral of people defining good and evil for themselves, starting with Adam and Eve, and going on through everyone, and it ending really badly. Um, and so I think there's a lot of bad news there. I think the bad news is, is that we as people are sinful, and that we as people, when we try and do things ourselves, like they tried to build the Tower of Babel, and they tried to you know, you know, nominate their own judges, and have their own kings, and be like the other people around them, that it just ended really badly, and just didn't end well. Um, and so uh, we, we talk about you know, this continuous story and this continuous thread that starts with creation that ends with revelation and that it's all leading up to, to Jesus and it's ultimately leading up to heaven. But um, the core conflict there, so every good story has a certain number of things, but it all has a good conflict, okay? The conflict of the Bible is separation from God. So we see that in the Old Testament. I'm, I'm listening through Exodus and Leviticus right now and you know, there's, I don't know, 14 chapters on how the tabernacle should be built, and it's grueling. <laughs> it really is. There's some guy that's really good at using 
uh, blue <laughs> fabric and <laughs> he makes, you know, this thing for Aaron and it's just like, I don't want to know about the acacia <laughs> wood and the gold that's wrapped around it. Um, but um, the reason that that's all in there in the detail is there had to be a way for a holy God to live among his people who were sinful. And so that's what that is all about. And that's what the temple kind of mirrors in the same way that we have God in this holy of holies and that there's separation from him in different ways. And that once a year you could go in wearing this special garment and you'd have bells on it and you have your legs wrapped around with a rope so that if you did something wrong, you'd be pulled out. Um, it's crazy, okay? And when we think about coming to God like in church or in worship or in prayer, I don't think that we like prepare ourselves in that way that we you know, do a, do a sacrifice and then we wash ourselves ritually. We put on a thing with bells and a rope around our legs to walk in and talk to God. Um, but that's the way that they were in the Old Testament. And the reason was is because they're sinful. And they're going in the presence of an, of an infinitely holy God. Um, so that's the conflict. The resolution of that conflict is what the gospel really is about. Okay? Is how can sinful man be reconciled to holy God and just God? Um, so how would we define the gospel? This would be our definition. There's many definitions, but it is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins, rose again, and has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. Um, I would say this too is, is that the next part of the gospel, so the gospel you could think of it as a thing that you respond to in one time and place, and that it's then, it's done. Sort of like your 14th birthday or something, like can't go back and do that again. But the gospel is something that acts not only in that moment, but it acts after that moment too. And so when the gospel is preached, let's say in a church, or it's taught, or it's read about, or it's thought about, um, it's going to transform new believers in that moment for them to confess and, and to repent and to be baptized. It's also going to lead to um, actually, you know, regular Christians being sanctified day by day. Okay, So I think it's why it's important to teach the gospel. And I guess I kind of equate it to like, you know, as an orthodontist or something like, you know, your core duties that you do, if you stop to focus on those, they're going to fall away. And you can get all like interested in all the other tangential things, like how to market your practice and how to do these things that aren't core to what it is you're doing. Or said another, like if you're a restaurateur and you have, you know, the main thing is the food that you put out. And if it's not good over time, it won't matter how pretty the restaurant is or how many specials you have or how good the maitre d' is or how good the wine. I mean, you have to focus on those core things. And for me, that's the gospel. And we have to really champion that and protect what the gospel is. Because I think there's a lot of people saying that the gospel is something that it's not. And so I think it's super important to believe the things that are written right there in terms of what the gospel are. Okay. Um, so what we're going to look at tonight is where the gospel shows up in the Old Testament. I don't think we think of that. I think we think of the, the Old Testament as something that we silo over on the side. It's kind of background. It's not active and alive and relevant. And I think the exact opposite is true. Okay. So I think the gospel was alive and the plan of the gospel was alive from the day that God created us, okay? And we'll, we'll see that tonight. So David's going to jump in and get that started. So thank you all so much for being here tonight. I recognize, like, everybody's busy. There's a lot of things you could be doing. There's a lot of things that, I guess, people that normally come to Bible study are doing. So I, it's, it's cool that you guys are here, and I appreciate y'all being here. Um, we've done this a couple times, but I just want to real briefly just, like, tell the story of the Old Testament. And um, maybe some of this is kind of like, whatever you've heard it before but i think it's important and so let's just kind of walk through it and maybe kind of stopping to make like the important themes of the old testament so maybe the most important event in the history of the world i guess you could think about this way because the world wouldn't be here if it hadn't happened would be creation so it's a huge 
you know, epic theological event is creation, the beginning of the universe. And importantly, in creation, what God created was good. And the crown of his creation was man and woman. Human beings created complementary for each other. Equal value, equal worth designed uh, for one another. And God had direct intimacy with his image bearers at the, at the beginning. And so this beautiful picture of God, the, I mean, the, the language literally says, he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, it's like a, a poet wrote it, you know? So there's this beautiful intimacy between God and humanity. And that's the first two and a half chapters of the Bible. And that's, it's like awesome. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing, you know, just goes down the crapper. Like the whole, it's, the whole thing is ruined. And so that's what Genesis, the second half of Genesis three, is about. And so that's the fall. And so the important idea there is there was intimacy, but now there's separation. And so from Genesis three to Revelation twenty-two, the rest of the Bible is trying to deal with this conflict of separation between a God who loves His creation, but is also just and holy and true to His character. So he must punish sin. So how does a God who must punish sin, who must be separate from sin, but who deeply loves his image bearers, how does he create intimacy again with those people? And so that's the story of the rest of the Bible. I think we have to set it that way because we're tempted to think about things just the opposite, right? The questions we ask is, God, how could you punish sinners? God, how could you send someone to hell? God, how could you not... Um, bring everyone into heaven. And I'm not demeaning those questions. I think those are important questions, especially with skeptics, to talk through those. But we should just know the Bible is not trying to answer those questions. The Bible is trying to answer the opposite question. The Bible is trying to answer the question of how can a holy and loving, how can a holy and just God love wretched sinners like us? Right? So that's the question the Bible is answering. And so that's the rest of the story. So then starting in Genesis 3 through 11, there's kind of a bunch of weird stories about a flood and a tower and how all that fits together. We talked about it when we went through that. But the next big kind of theological event happened in Genesis 12. And so God calls this pagan man named Abram out of the desert under a starlit sky and promises him three things. He says, I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to give you a great nation. And all people through the world will be blessed through you. And so this is the patriarchs is your blank there, patriarchs. And so God calls Abraham, promises him three things. So then the story is about Abraham's family for the next 1,500 years. That's what the, the Bible tells, the story of Abraham's family. So Abraham has Ishmael, and then his second son is Isaac. Isaac receives a blessing. Isaac has two sons. Esau's the firstborn, then Jacob. But Jacob steals the birthright from Esau, so Jacob's line is who we're tracing. Then Jacob has ultimately 12 sons, but his first, his 11th son is Joseph, who is his favorite son. Joseph gets sold off in, into slavery by his brothers through this incredible series of events that, that we went through. He ends up being second in command in Egypt. Then there's a huge famine. Um, Abraham's great-great-grandchildren are going to die, but because Joseph is second in command, he brings them to Egypt, feeds them so they don't starve. Then 400 years later, a pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know Joseph's family, this Pharaoh um, enslaved all of Joseph's family. He's now like two million people. So now they're in slavery in Egypt. God raises up Moses. Moses delivers them from Egypt. They go out into the desert. They take the scenic route to the promised land, wander around for 40 years, finally get to the promised land. Moses can't enter the promised land because he was uh, sinful, didn't follow God in obedience. So Joshua takes over. Joshua conquers most of Canaan with a few remaining places, then there's seven judges that rule over different parts of, of this family, this um, nation of Israel. And most of these seven judges are terrible people. They 
um, treat women as objects. They are, are violent unnecessarily. They don't keep the, the commands and the Torah that was given to them in, in the desert. But God works through these judges to preserve his people. This eighth judge, if you want to call him that, is a man named Samuel. Samuel anoints David. Uh, to, I mean, Saul, anoints Saul to be the first king. Saul's like an average king, but not good enough. So Saul's son doesn't get to be the next king. Then he anoints David. David is mostly a good king, has a unique heart, even in his sin, that desires God. So God says, um, you've been a man of war, so you're not going to get to build my temple. But from your line will come someone who will sit on the throne forever and have an eternal kingdom. Then David uh, has a bad week. He breaks almost all the Ten Commandments in one week, right? He, like, covets his neighbor's wife. He lies about it. He murders Uriah, Um, you know, so, you know, rough week. So things go really bad uh, for David. And so David, really the after effects of that uh, play out in Israel's history. So Solomon is the child of, of David and his mistress Bathsheba. And so David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and Solomon becomes king. Solomon lives in sin of greed and um, sexual sin, has a bunch of concubines and hundreds of wives. These, because of his sins, his son Jeroboam and his first um, commander Rehoboam have a civil war after Solomon dies and the kingdom divides in two. So you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom has ten tribes, southern kingdom has two tribes. Long story short, the North, both kingdoms basically don't follow the commandments of God, but especially the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom has no good kings. They live in idolatry. They worship foreign gods. Um, they're deeply involved in all kinds of sexual sin, and God gives them over to the um, Assyrians. So the Assyrians capture the northern kingdom in 722, wipe them out. The northern kingdom, like we talked about, is lost to, to history. There is no northern kingdom anymore. They assimilate into the Assyrian nation, other countries, there are no more northern kingdoms, which is important because David, King David, who the line of the Messiah will come from, is from Judah, which is in the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom must be preserved because the Messiah will come from the southern kingdom. In um, 500 BC, the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon, who then exiles, takes, takes all the Jews out of the southern kingdom, And they live outside the kingdom for about half a century until Persia takes over Babylon and um, King Cyrus allows the Jews to return to their promised land. So think about being a Jew in in this area. This is the area of like um, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. They come back and they rebuild the temple. So this is second temple Israel. You'll sometimes hear that phrase. They rebuild the walls around Israel. And so you think, you know, from their perspective, God promised our great, 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 so many thousands of years ago, grandfather Abraham, that we would have this land, that we would be a great nation, and that we would bless all the world. And now we've come back to our land, and we're a fledgling nation, but we still exist, but, and we're awaiting the opportunity that God will use us to bless the whole world. The next three or 400 years, uh, the Bible is silent, but um, several different kingdoms come and rise, and, and take over the Israel land. But all of them allow Israel to remain pseudo-independent. And when the New Testament opens, Rome is over. Um, Rome is governing Israel, but Israel is still a nation. And so I think a, a lot to, can be said about this story. But I think the promises to Abraham and the importance of God will keep his promises. And so I think when we read the stories of the Old Testament, Kyle was talking about 
the color of the garments and the what you can eat might be another example. And these weird laws and what's going on. The point is that God is wanting to make sure that this people is set apart, is distinct. They cannot assimilate and become just any other nation because this is the nation. This Abraham's people will be the people that he blesses the world through. And so God preserves and protects this people and their land um, because he's got a plan to bless the whole world through them. So as, as the Old Testament closes, um, you find this people, Abraham's descendants, awaiting and looking for a Messiah that their prophets have been talking about for 1,500 years. That's great. Um, all right, so has anyone read The Case for Christ? Yeah. It's almost like 100%, but Caitlin has not read it, which, Caitlin, you read all the time. What's wrong with you? Um, Interestingly, there's a chapter, and it's on the fingerprint evidence, and it's getting at sort of these prophecies. David and I both kind of recall that being like this amazing chapter. And then reading back through it, I was like, well, this is not maybe as good as we thought. It's a, it's a good chapter for what it is. It's basically a biography of this uh, now Christian uh, pastor or preacher that once was Jewish. And so he went through this process on a personal level of, as an Orthodox Jew growing up, that these Messianic prophecies were sort of ignored or kind of stamped out for natural and understandable reasons. But then in going back and studying it, he was like, oh. And so that was really faith-affirming and, and turned him into a Christian. Uh, and he might be a Messianic Jew. I can't remember what the exact nature is, but anyway, he believes in Christ. Um, and so the chapter was good. There's one little section of it that I'm going to share but there's, like I said, over 100 of these Messianic prophecies. We're going to focus on 10 of our favorites and 10 that I think you'll all know. But first, I want to look from the case for Christ at three main objections to this idea that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Because obviously, like, if you started to tell someone, like, you know that Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies, the first thing a cynic is going to think is, oh, I'm sure, right? And they're probably going to have one of these three objections. All right, so let's look at what they are. The first is the coincidence argument. Um, and that is the idea that could it just be a coincidence that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies? The problem with that is that we're talking about somewhere over 100 prophecies. So let's say it's 100. Statistically speaking, and I don't know, I, like that section of that book is always weird for me. It's like, how do you attach a statistical like number to 100 things happening in the life of somebody? Yeah, I don't know. I, so I don't know. But as we said earlier, it's, it's 100 different things written over 1,000 years by different authors. For those to all be fulfilled in the life of one person... Statistically, is impossible is basically what they said for lack of a better number. They gave a number, but it's one of these sort of like, it may as well be infinity numbers. Um, and so I'm going to take them on their word at that. And I think that that's probably a fair thing to say that if it's over 100 things, it's, you know, we've all heard the stories about, well, Lincoln's secretary was Kennedy and Kennedy's secretary was Lincoln. I mean, if you've heard, like, yeah. it was like weird things like, how is that possible? But those are like, you know, it's like two or three things that like blow our minds. This is like over 100 things. And so um, let's just go on the idea that it, being a coincidence does not carry much weight. Um, the second is the altered gospel argument. And for me, this is the one that I guess I would say makes the most sense. And this is probably where the mind of a cynic would go first. Um, that if you don't believe that the Bible is inspired and you believe that it's made up, this is where your mind would go. So I think it's worth considering this one and spending a little more time with it. The idea is, is that is it possible that the gospel writers fabricated details to make it seem as if Jesus fulfilled these prophecies? I think before we even talk about that, I think you need to, to, to think, well, and this is what the, the author, or the, the rabbi preacher guy that was being interviewed in chapter 10 of this book had said, he thought the Christian writers had sort of gone back and changed some of the Old Testament to make it fit and vice versa. And so what we know about the Old Testament is, is that what we have in the Old Testament 
is consistent and it's accurate because we've now, you know, after the fact found old documents like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls where we have like what I think has like all of Isaiah or something like that and then portions of others. We have the Septuagint, which is um, from before the life of Jesus, like the documents that that was translated from. Um, and we can see that those prophecies are still present in there in correlation with one another. Um, so what is in the Old Testament was written and was accurate before the life of Jesus and more importantly, before the gospel writers wrote what they wrote. Okay, so we know we have that, and that's solid. Now, the next question is, um, with the New Testament writers, um, did they make this stuff up to match up? I think that's probably the biggest, like, argument or objection. Um, so the gospel writers, let's, let's talk about just namely Matthew and Luke. They were alive during the time of Jesus, and as they're writing this, 70 to 100 A.D., there would have been people who were alive during the time of Jesus as well who had been reading what they wrote. And so if I'm Matthew or I'm Luke and I'm writing these things in, if I make up some prophecies, like I say, well, Jesus did this this time, and that mirrors this prophecy, and it didn't happen, people would have been able to say that, that that's not how that happened. Certainly Jewish people would have been able to say that didn't, definitely did not happen because they would have known what they were trying to do there. Um, I think the other side of this, too, is, is that if Matthew and Luke had made all this up, they probably wouldn't have been martyred for it. So both of those uh, were martyred for what they believed in. And so I think if they had fabricated these prophecies, I don't think it would have followed they would have been martyred, which is another argument for, for the truth of all this in general is, is that you know, 11 out of 12 apostles were martyred, um, as far as we know. Um, and so it's, it's easy to kind of like, you know, propagate a lie when it benefits us, but typically when the chips are down and it comes to death, people start giving up people. That's not the case with this situation. The third one is the intentional fulfillment argument, which to me is a little bit weaker of an objection. I think that second one's probably the best objection, although I don't know that it holds water. But um, this is the idea that maybe Jesus maneuvered his life in such a way as to fulfill these prophecies. Um, and so I think this works for some of them. I think as Jesus is riding in on a donkey, like that would have been pretty easy to figure out. Like, and David said this yesterday, I don't want to take this from you, but I think it's true. Mm -hmm. I think Jesus did intentionally fulfill some prophecies. Like, I think he was aware of these prophecies. Like, I think he sent someone to get the donkey, you know, but it's, there are certain things he could have controlled. Okay, like I said, like the donkey into Jerusalem, for example. Maybe some other things he said on the cross. Maybe the fact that he was silent in the presence of, uh, you know, when he's being tried in a couple of situations, he's like silent. And it's like, why don't you say something? Like, you could have totally gotten off in this situation, but you just were silent. Well, there's a reason. We'll see. But there's others there's no way that Jesus or anyone else could have controlled. So, like, I can't control that, that, that the, uh, the Jewish leaders give Judas 30 pieces of silver. And I can't control that I was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Uh, or I can't control that soldiers were going to gamble over my clothing. Or that I would be pierced in the side. I mean, there, there's certain things that it doesn't matter how intentional you are. You're not going to be able to control those things. Okay? And so I think that argument kind of loses its, its weight. Again, we're talking about over 100. So it's, you know, if it were like six things, like, yeah, maybe, but... Uh, at 100, I just don't think it makes sense. So let's move into what these are. Sorry to advance this slide. And this is actually a list of kind of like all these different prophecies. You can see like all the different places in the Bible that they're in, and it's kind of cool. We won't go through all those, but we're going to go through, like I said, 10 of them. So the first one is this idea that the nations will be blessed through Abram's lineage, or Abraham's lineage. It's in Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. David has talked about this. It's the Abrahamic covenant. And this is why when you open up Matthew, um, it starts with a genealogy. And this is to say, here's Adam. 
through Abraham, through David, to Jesus. That's why when you open up Luke, it's the same genealogy, slightly different, because I think it follows his mother rather than his father, like in, in Matthew, but it's the same idea. It's like Abraham, David, Jesus. And that's super important that it's in there like that, because it was prophesied about. The second one is the scepter will come through Judah. Judah's your blank. Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So this is Genesis 49. Think about how long that is from Genesis to Matthew or to Jesus. Um, it's incredible. And the idea that, like, as we, you know, you kind of track very quickly through what all happened, that Judah, a son of Jacob, would end up, you know, having kids in such a way that Jesus comes through that. It's also especially interesting as an aside, Judah was an extremely flawed guy, not a, not a good guy. He ends up sleeping with his, what, daughter-in-law, yeah. who he thinks is a prostitute at the time. And um, just a, a terrible situation. And she, she kind of like gets one over on him. Um, but then he ultimately becomes the one who says he'll stand um, in the place of Benjamin, in, 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 where Joseph, he thinks he may kill Benjamin. So he kind of has this redemptive moment in that story. Um, but he's the guy, you know, as imperfect as he is, he's the guy through which Jesus will come. Uh, the next one is David's offspring in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. David's offspring will have an eternal kingdom. All right, so we've established Abraham, tribe of Judah. Now we're, you know, kind of narrowing it down to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so I mean... Since we know the end of the story, this is like cool. At the time, it would have been like, I don't know if they would have made that connection. You know, oh, that sounds cool, you know. Um, and when it says the kingdom would you know, be established forever, I'm thinking they're like, yeah, for a few hundred years. But no, like forever. Okay. Uh, the next one is the method of his execution. These are both cool. These are both in Psalm 22, the next two. Um, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. What's particularly interesting about this one is, is the method of execution, we know, crucifixion. His, his hands were pierced, his feet were pierced. That uh, method of execution was not invented yet. And so at the time at which David had been doing this, there was no such thing as crucifixion. So obviously a really popular thing for the Romans. Romans were not around when David was king, okay? So that in and of itself is pretty cool. Because otherwise, I mean, I'm sure there's some other ways that, you know, he could have been injured in that way. But it's just a really beautiful thing that that's the way it worked out. And then the last one is that the soldiers would gamble for his clothing. Psalm 22, just two verses later. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So we're just kind of doing a top ten list here. Um, like Kyle said, there, <clears throat> we could have done, you know, just do this all night. But here's number seven is your virgin birth. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. <clears throat> so it's a popular Christmas verse, right? But imagine what that verse meant 700 years before Jesus was born. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's pretty cool. His ministry would begin in Galilee. That's pretty specific. Blank there, Galilee. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, right? Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So this light's coming out of Galilee. Hmm. Daniel 7, the Messiah's kingdom would be everlasting. 
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds in heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. <clears throat> Go home tonight and read uh, the trial stories from Matthew. Jesus quotes this. So they say, are you the Christ, are you the Christ? And finally he answers, says, yes, and you will see the Son of Man coming down the clouds of heaven. And they're like, then it, like the whole thing breaks loose. It just enrages everyone because uh, they, they understand what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, I'm fulfilling Daniel 7. And that, that's kind of a powerful moment in the, uh, in the Jesus story. So the place of his birth is foretold. I mean, think about the place of the Messiah's birth is foretold. Before you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah. So this is, he's like, I know you're like this small clan in Judah, but out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, like having created the universe, from ancient times. That's Micah 5.2. These are so faith-affirming. You know what I mean? It's like, man, that's exactly what happened. Then Zechariah 11. <clears throat> so Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 30. I told them, if you think it's best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they value me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things like it almost feels like, like, you know, you've maybe watched like the shows where they find like num number codes like in the Old Testament. And they're like, and this means that, you know, this guy's the Antichrist. And like, it almost has this like kind of icky like thing to like read about these fulfilled prophecies. But it's not icky. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, super intentional in the way that it's written and it's super faith affirming and yet I don't think we really like talk about it that much like I you know I mean it's, it'll come up in sermons here and there mm -hmm. but it's like what a big deal and like yeah. what a big deal to someone who would have been Jewish who would known these scriptures like like the back of their hand to have read this in the gospels and be like oh my goodness you know like and they would have missed a lot of it obviously mm -hmm. like they would have gotten portions of Jesus but they would have been like completely I think just uh, dumbfounded and we haven't even done this. the best one yet we haven't done the best one yet, which is the one we're about to do. Yep. Was that your way of saying I need to hurry up? No, not at all. Okay. I, all just, right. I thought it was a good I'll segue. I'll get to it. No, it is a good segue. <laughs> You're right. We're doing the best one right now. Um, and, and, and yeah, to be fair, like in terms of the gospel and the prophets, the chapter that most sort of exemplifies that would be Isaiah 53. Um, and so uh, David said this yesterday, but you could teach the gospel just from Isaiah 53. And it's in the Old Testament. Okay. So this was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And it tells in breathtaking detail the story of Jesus, a suffering servant who took on the punishment that others deserved, and as a result of his wounds, we are healed. So as you read this, it kind of becomes a little creepy because it's so exact. And again, 700 years before, we have all of Isaiah and a Dead Sea Scrolls that they found, like luckily, okay, like intact. So we know this has not been changed. We know that if the, you know, the New Testament writers had changed every little detail that you'll see in this, there's probably like 15 it would have been called out for. And so how cool is this? But <clears throat> I'm going to read it and then David's going to break it down. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows with familiar, uh, sorry, and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 3-9 and 12. So let's just like maybe quickly point out a few things here that are just, <clears throat> I mean, just really awesome. So uh, we kind of underline a few that we'll just pause and talk about. So he was despised and rejected by men. So the, this story, this prophecy in Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus was born, tells of this servant who is despised and rejected by men. That, that's basically the story of Jesus, at least how his life ends. And then it says, they're almost doing theology now. He took up our infirmities. That's the idea of the suffering servant who took up our sickness, our weakness. And then underline here, he was pierced for our transgression. So again, <clears throat> telling the story of the suffering servant who is pierced for the transgressions, the sins of the people. Oh yeah, sorry. I was listening to you. So, so the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. So that is basically the gospel. Right, that sentence is basic. That's basically it. The punishment that brought us so Jesus Christ received punishment. <clears throat> There's a tendency in preaching the gospel that I think comes from a good place, but to minimize the idea that Jesus was punished. Right, it's it kind of preaches weird or or whatever. But I mean the 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 messy the Messiah that Jesus was fulfilling in his person received the punishment that was due us. So there there is a penal substitutionary atonement. He was punished in our place and we receive atonement for that. And so that this sentence, maybe more than any other sentence in the Bible, just confirms uh, that that's the view of the atonement that's biblical. So the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we're healed. So how are we healed? How are we given peace? By the wounds of the suffering servant. So the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, our sins were placed on Jesus on the cross. Then just kind of, there's some esoteric details in the story. He did not open his mouth. So remember, over and over, he's on trial. They ask him these questions. He finally quotes Daniel 7, but over and over, he, he won't answer. He won't open his mouth. I'm almost certain Jesus is intentionally fulfilling, I am the Jewish Messiah. He's making a point. I, I am the Jewish Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of these stories. And who can speak of his descendants? So this is a, a neat thing to point out here. You guys remember the story. We'll talk about it in, uh, in I guess, in a couple months. But um, there's a story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So there's this Ethiopian eunuch. He's riding in a chariot, and he's reading from the Bible, remember? And Philip comes up and talks to him. And then the, it says in, in Acts, it says he was reading from, and it quotes Isaiah 53. So one of the reasons I think this is neat is, of course, they're, I mean, they're making the point in Acts. This Ethiopian eunuch recognizes and Philip connects with him. The suffering servant is Jesus. Then the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized right there. Um, but think about it. He's a eunuch, so he doesn't have any descendants, right? He doesn't have any children. I, I don't know this, but I think part of what Philip did was point out this verse. That you're, you're valuable in God's eyes. In fact, the suffering servant doesn't have any descendants. He was cut off from the land of the living, right? 
Um, and so I, I think that's a neat thing to think about. So he's made a grave with the wicked. So remember, he died next to two criminals. And he was with the rich in his death. Remember, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. And then again here, he bore the sin of many. He said, Jesus bore your sin. So what was going on then when he was fulfilling all these prophecies is he was taking on the sins of the world. And you can't say that that had nothing to do with the crucifixion and say that you believe the Bible. The Bible could not be clearer about that. So we are going to show a video. It is eight minutes long. And I got to say, it's probably my favorite. If I had to pick one video, this is probably my favorite. So praise God. I think that, I mean, it's just a beautiful story that connects the whole thing. So um, you guys give me two minutes and I'll try to, to land this plane, so to speak. So 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah 53 tells with breathtaking detail the story of Jesus, a suffering servant who took on the punishment that others deserved, and as a result of his wounds, we are healed. So think about in Luke 24, verse 44, we talked about it, that's our theme for tonight. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So um, we'll get there. We'll finish telling this whole story of the Bible. But the point for tonight is the Bible is one story from beginning to end. And it's a unified story telling how God interacts with his character into our character. So our character of sinfulness and separation from him and how he works through history to redeem that. You might tell a story in five phases. The first would be the character of God. <clears throat> Your blanks here are we can be sinful humanity, united relationship with a holy God. So that's the story of the Bible. How can we as sinful humanity be united in relationship to a holy God? And you could tell this story kind of in the narrative, which we've done tonight and we'll keep doing. You could also tell it theologically. So the first thing that happens theologically is the character of God. So there's a God who is holy and loving. He's holy, so he must judge sin. He's loving, so he must love sinners. Then you've got the, so the character of God, then you've got the sinfulness of man. So the truth is, in, in the face of this holy God, we're sinful and must be separated from him. So then you have the sufficiency of Christ. So Christ lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve to die, and conquered the enemies, sin and death, that we could never defeat. So Christ is the sufficient lamb. He fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. He is the true Israelite, the perfect man, who is... Um, <clears throat> Who, is, who has the right identity to stand in our place. So he dies for us. That's sufficient in Christ. The fourth act would be the necessity of faith. So Christ is sufficient. Our faith in him is necessary. So through not belief in him, faith in him. You put your trust in Jesus, not just your intellectual assent. So we put our faith in Jesus, which leads to the fourth theological theme, which is the urgency of eternity. If one through four are true, we can't keep living like it, like it doesn't matter, right? So how we spend our time, where we invest and spend our money, what we dream about, what we hope that um, our life looks like over the next 50 years, that all should be changed radically because these things are true. And so we've got a vision of not just what's going to happen over the next 60 years and hopefully I'll have a good life and good retirement and buy a beach house and um, kind of coast off into the sunset. No, we want to have a vision for the next 60,000 years, the next 6 million years, because you and I are going to exist then because this is true. And so if that's true, we spend our money, we spend our time, we invest in relationships, we speak more boldly and, and are willing to be in uncomfortable conversations because those conversations will matter in 6,000 years. How big your beach house isn't going to. So that's the gospel, and that's how it connects from the Old Testament to the prophets.